Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today uh, to try to understand some rather difficult passages of uh, Isaiah. Give us the strength, the grace, the inspiration to open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say to us, uh, not only through Scripture, but the various church's interpretation. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. I want to do a couple things today a little differently than you. Uh, one of the, that you might expect, one of the questions I'd like to ask you is, is Isaiah turning out to be different than what you expected, or is it pretty much what you expected. Hmm? What? Okay, good. All right. Anyone else? I'm sorry? What did you expect? Oh, okay. That's true. It's hard for most of people to understand. Yes, ma'am. Yes, yes, yes. You kind of have to forget about chronological order. That's right. If you don't understand the history, you really don't understand what Isaiah is already talking about. But I think most people, when they think about the prophets, they're thinking about, oh, warm, fuzzy words and nice phrases and all about love. And that's not what you're getting, is it? Now, a lot of it is kind of gloom and doom. Uh, but it is like any other, almost like any other novel in a way. Sometimes when you read novels, particularly history stories, the gory part is up front. And then afterwards, they kind of settle down and start uh, telling you how that gory part came about. Well, in the book of Isaiah, you're going to kind of get the same type of thing. It isn't until we get into part two that you're going to get some of the nice warm fuzzy words and those things that pertain to Christ. But you see, in the 7th and 8th century B.C., the whole idea of the Messiah just didn't exist. Uh, that didn't come about until long after uh, the Babylonian exile ended. Uh, it started during the time the people were in Babylon. But that was in the latter part or you know, the latter half uh, of the 6th century. Okay. Uh, when they finally begin to realize why they were there. You see, God made a covenant with Abraham, as we've said many, many times, and renewed it uh, down through the ages, you know, with Moses and Elijah and so forth, and with King David. And in with David, he emphasized, God emphasized that God would always protect 
the house of David, that is, the ancestor, the descendants of David, and that there would always be um, somebody from the house of David uh, ruling over Jerusalem and Judea. All right. And along with that was implied that God would protect Judah or and the area, Jerusalem particularly, because it was God's favorite place. This was God's uh, home, and this was God's location, etc., etc. All right. So then, when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, it totally confused the Jewish people. They couldn't understand why did God abandon them? Why did God allow the Babylonians to take over and to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the glorious temple that Solomon had built 500 years before, or almost 500 years. Okay. They could not understand that. And it took quite a while, several years, in Babylon and through the efforts of the prophet Ezekiel to finally come to their senses. It was because of their own sinfulness their own waywardness and their ways of wanting their way rather than God's way that got them there in the first place. So you see, and this is something we really want to get into and talk about today. God created all mankind, all the earth, all that is, let's say. And he is in command. And you're going to have to understand that and accept that. And a lot of people don't want to. And even today, people don't want to accept the fact that God is really in command and he's going to get his way. Uh, his way, or this plan of salvation that I've talked about over and over, uh, is at the root of it. And what it really means is God's way of taking care of his creation and eventually bringing them back into uh, the home of his father, or I'm talking about Jesus now, uh, the home of his father in heaven. But for those who, like the Jewish people at the time before the Babylonian exile, wanted things their way and refused to accept and go along with what God had given them through particularly through Moses, they're going to be left out in the cold. I'd like to tell a little story that actually happened uh, to me as a child to kind of represent what heaven is like. Now some of you, like Gene has probably heard this a dozen times or more and so has some of the others, who have been here, but when I was oh seven or eight or nine, uh, someplace in that age bracket, young person, uh, one of my closest friends in school uh, had a birthday party. And as I learned later from my mother, but it didn't console me at all, uh, he was told that he could only invite six children. This was during Depression times and things were rough and so uh, the mother of this child wanted to give him 
or her, I don't even remember that part of it, uh, a little celebration, but had limited to six uh, friends, and I was not one of them. <laughs> and I was devastated. You know how kids can get when, you know, they're sort of excluded for something. Now, nothing changed in my life except that I was not invited to this party. That is, in some ways, what heaven is all about. And hell. Once we die, we will see the face of God momentarily in what they call a particular judgment. That is, uh, as soon as we die. All right? And then we will know where we will end up. Heaven, purgatory, or hell. Based on how we acted, how we accepted the teachings of God throughout our lifetime. Now, if we've committed one little sin... Uh, one serious sin. You know, not, God's not, con- not going to condemn us unless it involves the will that lasts through our lifetime and is there at the end of rejecting God, just like the Jewish people rejected Christ. Right. <clears throat> Nothing happened to me personally but I was excluded and had no way to get back into this good graces within this group of six uh, friends that the birthday boy invited. So you see, God will just leave us outside of heaven and the fact that we've seen the face of God but can never be reunited with him forever, even though nothing else changes. That is what hell is all about. And we have to kind of put that in our minds and have it be uh, the objective of how our life is run, to avoid that kind of situation. And always be among the invited who are then accepted into heaven. Does that make sense? Uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. These three chapters are very much a repetition of some of the stuff you've already read. But there's some confusing things in there that I'd like to go over. And then we're going to talk about a few other things that are outside of the uh, assigned readings, but nevertheless are part of the subject matter. Okay. I get a little confused sometimes because I'm always uh, two or three lessons ahead of you and I'm uh, forgetting what lessons, uh, chapters we're covering here. Uh, Beginning uh, with chapter 28. Uh, With chapter 28 now, we're going back to the first Isaiah. Remember, 
chapters 13 through 27 were probably written long after 1st Isaiah and reinserted. So we're going back now to what most Bible scholars believe was actually written by 1st Isaiah. And, of course, there is some repetition here. Again, we have to understand that this is written in poetic language. And so you're not going to get a straight picture from what Isaiah is saying. So if you've been confused uh, by the wording and figure I haven't the slightest idea of what he's saying, don't feel that you're alone. Okay? And it is not so important that you understand the words. It's more important that you understand the message. Is that clear? Alright. I think that will make it easier, but that doesn't mean that you can just skip over things uh, because you don't get the words. For example, and let's start here. Ah, majestic garland of the drunkards of Ephraim. Now, anybody know who or what Ephraim is? All right. Remember, I think we covered this in the first or second lesson. When the Israelites came back from Egypt, they were all assigned a, a specific location or a specific plot of land within Israel, all right, according to their tribal background. Remember the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Ephraim wasn't one of those 12 sons of uh, Jacob, so how did he get in there? Ephraim is actually one of the names of those locations. Each of the locations was named after one of the sons of Jacob, all right? Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. Uh, Judah starts out with Reuben was the first. I forget all the names in order. I used to know them, but, you know, old age kind of crept on me. Anyways, <clears throat> 12 tribes of Jacob. The Levites were excluded from a plot of land because the Levites were, by direction of God through Moses, uh, assigned the job of being the ministers, the religious ministers, to all the other tribes. All right? So they did not get a plot of land. So that's a minus one. Okay? Then Joseph, the second youngest son, who was sold into slavery into Egypt, married an Egyptian woman. So, that was a no-no. So that's another minus one. But as sort of consolation, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were assigned a plot of land. So you still come back to 12. Okay. 
Ephraim is one of the regions within the northern part of uh, Israel, part of the northern kingdom. Okay. Its capital was Samaria. So what he is saying here is the majestic garland of the drunkards of Ephraim. Now the drunkards of Ephraim meaning the leaders. They were drunk not so much with wine but with power. And they felt that their power was as great as God and they didn't need God. That's quite often some of the attitudes of people even today. Wealth begets arrogance, which then negates a relationship with God or a recognition of a dependence upon God. Fading blooms of his glorious beauty at the head of the fertile valley upon those stupefied with wine. See, the Lord has a strong one, a strong leader, a mighty one, who, like an onslaught of hail, a destructive storm. Now, what it's saying is that the Lord has taken or chosen to use one of the enemies of Israel to make it stand up and see what is right. And that enemy was Assyria. So the Lord is using the country of Syria to shake up the northern nation of Israel into recognizing their wrongdoing. Like a flood of water, great and overflowing, levels to the ground with violence, with feet that trample the majestic garlands of the drunkards of Ephraim, the fading blooms of the glorious beauty. In other words, when the Assyrians overrun the northern kingdom of Israel, including the region of Ephraim, they are not going to be concerned with keeping things as they are. They're going to destroy things as they go through. That is what this is saying. I want to jump over a little bit because you're getting a lot of repetition here. Remember, this is poetry. Okay. Uh, on the next page, uh, beginning with verse 7. But these also stagger from wine. Now we're talking about those people, the leaders of Judah, the southern kingdom. These also stagger from wine and stumble from strong drink. And he's not talking so much about wine or, or other spirits. He's really talking about power. Priest and prophet stagger from strong drink. Now, that sounds kind of contradictory in a way, does it not, when they include the prophets in there? Did anybody wonder about that? Okay. 
how would they or why would they criticize the prophets? Yes, you've heard the term false prophets, right? All right. During this period of time, and starting back earlier, around the end of the ninth century, particularly with Queen Jezebel, uh, the wife of uh, King Ahab, she started what is called the Guild Prophets. In other words, there were other prophets earlier, Elijah and Elisha, who did not leave any writings of their own, uh, but they were very instrumental in the hands of God. They were very prominent at this time, and they chastised Jezebel because she was not a Jew. She was a foreigner uh, who Ahab had married, and then when she got to be the queen, uh, she brought in a lot of uh, her own uh, religion, which was the worship of Baal, B-A-A-L, all right? So, she didn't like these ideas, uh, the ideas of Elijah and Elisha and having uh, so much strength and power of their own from God, so she started what is called the Guild Prophets, and this is a group of people who studied the Torah, but they also studied uh, Baal and the religions of some of the pagan countries and in the, with the purpose of trying to influence the Jewish people uh, to accept some of these uh, foreign ideas, uh, foreign religious beliefs, etc., etc. Anyways, God chastised the guild prophets and they did not really last very long. But it was during this time of Isaiah uh, that they were still trying to gain power. The prophets such as Isaiah, Amos, uh, Micah, and Hosea that existed at this particular time were true prophets of God. They were independent of the guild prophets. They were independent of everyone else. Okay. But true to God. So... Does that make sense? Does that answer your questions as to how they could condemn um, the priests and the prophets here? All right. It was the guild prophets that they were condemning. Now, uh, on the next, uh, in the next column to the right, you have a statement here. Uh, that has to be somewhat explained, and it goes over to the next page here, about command on command, command on command, rule on rule, rule on rule, here a little, there a little. The words in themselves uh, are a little strange, and if any of you have seen the musical Les Miserables uh, and the song that the innkeeper sings, master of the house these words are in that song okay. All right. uh, in other words cheat a little here cheat a little there etc okay. a little here a little there All right. these are actually uh, the gibberish um, that is mentioned in another place okay. uh, in some of the older 
translations of the Bible, they have other words in here. Down in the middle of uh, the page 75, you have a statement that says, um, the, quote, the quotation of the advice given by Israel's inebriated priests is a succession of nonsense syllables in Hebrew, though the N-A-B-R-E, anybody look up to see what N-A-B-R-E stands for? No one? New American Bible Revised Edition. That's what it stands for. Okay. It says, though the New American Bible uh, Revised Edition obscures this by adding in these words. Okay. It is, uh, if you remember the in the book of Daniel, when Daniel sees the handwriting on the wall, Mani um, take a, forget the other two or three words involved. Uh, there's many interpretations of that. Uh, you have the same kind of thing here. It's not really important to our overall idea or the picture. Okay. But I want to go back on page 74. There's a statement here that applies to what I've been saying uh, right sort of about two-thirds of the way down in the commentary, the, the middle of the commentary. It says here, I be Isaiah believed that Assyria, God's chosen instrument of judgment, will make short work of Samaria and its proud crown. All right. This follows through is, remember, all mankind are God's children, but some war against each other. And God will use that because he knows it's going to happen anyways. So he uses the idea of Assyria conquering northern Israel, including the capital, Samaria, as a way of punishing. Now, the people there were so caught up in apostate or uh, pagan rituals, etc., that when the Assyrians did conquer them, they wiped them out. Took some to, uh, back to Babylon and some of, well, it wasn't Babylon at the time, but some of their area uh, never to be seen again, and repopulated Samaria with, as we've said before, uh, with people that they didn't want. Okay. So, quite often I will use a statement that is surprising to some people, but I'm not making it up. It is here that God is using Assyria uh, as an instrument of his work in securing his plan of salvation. Okay. Over on the far right side of page 75 is a statement that needs a little bit of explanation. Uh, it begins with verse 16. 
says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, see, I am laying a stone in Zion, a stone that has been tested, a precious cornerstone as a sure foundation. Whoever puts faith in it will not waver. All right. God is beginning to sow the seeds of the idea of a Messiah. The stone is actually who? Jesus Christ. Yes. Um, if you go to Psalm 118, it talks about the cornerstone that the builders rejected. The builders meaning the Jewish people rejected. Now, this is a poem um, or a psalm that the Jewish people themselves wrote. And yet they don't recognize the fact that they are talking about themselves. It says, the stone rejected by the builders has been the cornerstone of the church. Let's go over to page 76. Here we are again talking about the northern kingdom. You see in verse 21, there is a typographical error here. It says, for the Lord shall raise up or, or rise up as on Mount Perizim. That should be Gerizim, G-E-R. G, 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 letter G. Mount Gerizim was like Mount Sinai in southern Israel. It was a holy mountain on which many things happened and where Aaron, the son of, I mean, the brother of Moses, is buried, or was buried. Uh, In the middle of that page, it says, While it is true that Jerusalem was dependent on God's presence in the city, God's presence was, in turn, dependent on the behavior of the city's people. All right? I hope you understand that. It's saying that Jerusalem and the temple was the location of God's domicile, you might say, in the eyes of the Jewish people. And they felt that God was their God only, did not belong to anybody else, and didn't want anybody else to participate uh, in God. But they themselves did not obey God. And says so, if you read this again, it says, while it is true that Jerusalem was dependent on God's presence in the city, that is, dependent for its livelihood, its prominence, its sacredness, and so forth and so on, uh, because of God's presence. God's presence in that temple 
in that city was dependent on the people's behavior. And if they neglected God, God was going to neglect them. Now, you'll see that in part two of this series, uh, starting in January, but more so, if you think about it, the second time Jerusalem is destroyed is in 70 AD because the people rejected Christ. When God stood before them in the person of Jesus Christ and is still rejected because he didn't measure up to what they wanted and they put him to death, God gave them another 40 years to come to their senses and they didn't. So God wipes out the city again and the temple never to be rebuilt. Yes, Jean. It had to be that way. It had to be the way that God wanted. Uh, and this is really the essence of really what I'm talking about all this morning is the fact that God's plan of salvation is going to get done one way or the other, whether the people like it or not, because it is the best for the majority of people. That is his plan. His plan is, again, is to open up the gates of heaven, which were closed from the time of Adam and Eve to the time of Christ's death and resurrection, and then then establish a new Jerusalem in the presence and the person of the Catholic Church. And he's not going to let anything stop that. That is his overall plan, and it's going to get done one way or the other. Okay. And Jesus talks about that um, in Matthew 21. And throughout, really, uh, Matthew's Gospel, particularly chapters 24 and 25, which is often called the little apocalypse. Yes? Yes, the question is, did God break the covenant with the Jews because they didn't get it? Yes, that's true. He did. Uh, And that is the, that is signified by the fact that God destroyed again using the uh, Romans uh, to destroy the temple in 70 AD. It was a sign of God's withdrawal of his covenant and making it null and void. And that is why the new covenant made through and signified by the death of Jesus Christ is mentioned every time we attend Mass. When the priest lifts up the host and says, this is the covenant, this is the blood of the new covenant. 
new and everlasting covenant. So, um, you can't have two covenants going at the same time. And the old one was uh, made null and void in 70 AD uh, by the fact that they rejected God in the person of Jesus Christ. After God took care of him for 2,000 years, over and over and over, as we can see right here in Isaiah and many of the other books, they still rejected him because uh, they wanted things their way. And unfortunately, and I think we should not look down upon the Jewish people, we should feel sorry for them. We should feel sorry for them and pray for them. Uh, because this is, you know, this is really a serious situation. And that doesn't mean that they can't be saved. That doesn't mean that they can't go to heaven. It just means that they've got to change their attitude and accept God in the way he wants to be accepted and live according to the way he wants to live. And that's important for us also. Um, let me look over this there's a a few other points that I would like to, to bring out here if you go to page 79 here's a quotation uh, from Isaiah that is used in Matthew's Gospel, uh, verse 13. The Lord says, Since this people draws near with words only and honors me with their lips alone, though their hearts are far from me. Jesus quotes those words in Matthew uh, chapter 15, verse 8, where he says, uh, these wicked people honor me with, um, no, do not honor me with, oh, I'll forget offhand the, the quotation, but in other words, they give lip service. He uses the word lip service in there. All right. Across from that is an interesting uh, paragraph, uh, verse 16. Who sees us? Who knows us? In other words, if God isn't present in front of them, then God doesn't know what these people are saying or doing. And that's what is meant by that statement. Next, it says, your perversity is as though the potter were taken to be the clay. As though what is made should say to its maker, he did not make me. Or the vessel should say to the potter, he does not understand. These almost identical words are used by the prophet Jeremiah in a very interesting part of Jeremiah's book called um, Down to the Potter's uh, Shed, okay, where God directs the prophet Jeremiah to go to the potter's shed. Uh, obviously, this is uh, one of the commercial potters in in the city. 
and to see what the potter is doing. And the potter is working at his at the wheel, molding the clay. And in the process, something doesn't work out right. So he takes the same clay, kind of bunches it up in a ball again, and starts over. And then what God says to Jeremiah is, you see what I'm doing? You see what the potter is doing. He's taking the same clay, but he's molding it into a different object. Can't I do the same thing with you, meaning Israel? And that is what is meant by that little story. Uh, it's a very interesting story. I recommend that if you have time, you read it. In the Down in the commentary, says the prophet blames this on the people of Jerusalem who are content with merely going through the motions during worship. And that is what uh, is in reference to giving lip, lip service. Don't we, in many cases, when we go to particularly Sunday Mass, go there uh, out of habit, go there out of the fact that it is the nice thing to do, or go there uh, because if we don't, somebody's going to think that, you know, we're sinning uh, or we're doing something wrong. We Don't we go there occasionally, if not frequently, for the wrong reasons? Doing the right thing, but for the wrong reasons, is still wrong. The idea of going to Mass on Sunday is to worship the Lord. Worship the Father. Okay? And what is worship? It is giving ourselves verbally, but with full intention to the Lord. But we do we really do that? Most people don't. They go there to recite the Mass as quickly as they can, the prayers of the Mass as quickly as they can, and get out before somebody else gets out there and blocks them in in the car in the parking lot, you know. Um, or they can't wait to get the coffee and donuts afterwards that the Knights of Columbus have. Um, or they can't wait to get out there and meet their friends. But that's not what worship is all about. So often people say, well, I don't get anything out of Mass. You're not supposed to get something out until you give. What do you give? Your mind and your heart. And all of your self to God to be used as if he was asking you to be a prophet. Now, let's divert a little bit here. I hope all of you have gotten one of these handouts.
if you'll fold it in half like that, so you're not distracted by the other side, let's look at the side, the right side, headed by, are there prophets today? This is an excerpt taken from America Magazine, a Catholic, a Jesuit <coughs> publication. And this is part, a very small part, of a long uh, article on Pope Francis. So this is something very up-to-date, very modern, and it's addressed to all of us today. Pope Francis is the first pontiff from a religious order since the Commodalis, the monk Gregory XVI, who was elected in 1831. So, you know, good, good long time. So I asked, in other words, this is the interviewer who asked many, many questions of the uh, Pope. And these questions came from a variety of uh, locations, uh, magazines, and other publications, and were sort of condensed, you might say, into a string of um, questions presented to the Pope, who over a period of about three days uh, gave his up sort of off-the-cuff uh, or spontaneous responses. And it's a very long article covering 12 or 15 pages, something in there. It says, what is the specific place of religious men and women in the church today? Now, specific religious men and women, he's talking about, about uh, priests, nuns, monks, deacons, etc. But it applies to you and me as well. It applies to everybody who is representing the Catholic Church. It says, religious men and women are prophets. But there's a distinction here, but I'm going to come back to that. It says, religious men and women are prophets, says the Pope. They are those who have chosen a following of Jesus that imitates his life in obedience to the Father. Poverty, community life, and chastity. Obviously, that is not us, but nevertheless, the rest of this, and I'll come back to it in a minute. In this sense, the vows cannot end up being caricatures. Otherwise, for example, community life becomes hell, and chastity becomes a way of life for unfruitful bachelors. The vow of chastity must be a vow of fruitfulness. In the church, the religious are called to be prophets, in particular by demonstrating how Jesus lived on this earth and to proclaim how the kingdom of God will be in its perfection. A religious must never give up prophecy. This does not mean opposing the hierarchy or the hierarchical part of the church, although the prophetic function and the hierarchical structure do not coincide. Amen. 
I am talking about a proposal that is always positive, but it should not cause timidity. Let us think about what so many great saints, monks, religious men and women have done, from St. Anthony the Abbot onward. Being prophets may sometimes imply making waves. Well, we've seen that certainly in Isaiah. I do not know how to put it. Prophecy makes noise, uproar, and some says a mess. But in reality, the charism of religious people is like yeast. Prophecy announces the spirit of the gospel. Now, though he is talking about committed religious people, priests, nuns, monks, etc., that does not exclude us from being prophets as he mentions here. Whenever we talk about the church in a positive way, in other words, approval way, we often hear about people talking about the church in a very negative way, <coughs> but that is not what is mentioned here. It is in the approval way. In other words, you are uh, trying to uh, foster or encourage the life of the church and pass it on to others. Then you are a prophet because you are speaking for God. And your speech should be positive. If it is not then you are wrong and speaking for the devil. Excuse me. Now, what I'm talking about is that we should all, we have an obligation of fostering the church, promoting the church, to anyone and everyone. That doesn't mean that you have to go out and grab the first person you see and start hammering <coughs> at him or her. But where the occasion arises in a natural situation, and you have an opportunity to talk about the church in a positive way, you have an obligation to do that. You are the body of Christ. And whenever Christ had an opportunity to talk to his people or those around him about the Father and other matters, he could not stop. Often we hear about Jesus preaching and teaching from morning until night. And you often wondered, well, when did he have a chance to sleep? Well, he probably didn't a lot. Um, nevertheless, he had to foster the ideas that his father gave him and sent him to earth to promote. So, you've got to make a distinction, and this is part of what I really want to get to. The distinction between an everyday conversation that promotes the church, that is being a prophet. But when the church speaks in a 
infallible way in the matters of truth, morals, then it is only the Pope who can make that kind of statement. So, and that is more of the prophecy that Isaiah is doing in this book. So you got to make a distinction. There's, because I was in a conversation on this subject just recently uh, about the infallibility of the Pope uh, and making statements in the matters of truth. Uh, faith in morals, I should say, not truth, but faith in morals. Faith, of course, uh, implies truth. The, the Pope is the only one who can make those statements. And that is after a long period of study, examination, prayer, and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it has often been a very touchy subject with many people. Uh, and I've heard people use that as an excuse for not uh, becoming Catholic. You know, they're Christian, or at least they say they're Christian, uh, but they don't want to be Catholic because they don't like the idea that the Pope is infallible. Well, they haven't done their homework because uh, the, the privilege of the infallibility of the Pope has only been used twice in the last almost 200 years. Twice. On subjects that were already accepted by the majority of Catholics uh, for hundreds of years before that. In 1850, uh, it was the proclamation of the Immaculate Conception. And in 1954, it was the proclamation of the Assumption of Mary. Okay. So, only two times in almost 200 years has the church used the privilege of infallibility. That's a different kind of prophecy. All right. Again, speaking for God. But we can be prophets as long as or whenever we proclaim the teachings of the church and the beauty of the church and it's important that we do so. Okay. All right. Uh, well, I, I hear what you're saying but I take issue with the, your opening statement about the issue of infallibility being something more of a modern thing. Technically, it is not. It has always been a part of the church. And uh, dogma has always uh, come out of the ecumenical councils, um, all the way back to Ephesus uh, in 1434, all right, and some of the previous ones. Uh, so, and of course, the Pope is the only one that can call uh, an ecumenical council. No one else can um, start that, although it's often come from a grassroots effort uh, to the Pope in some way, which eventually comes out. But he is the one to make it an official call. 
the idea of the Pope being the only person is not something that is exclusive to the Pope. Uh, it's just that he's the last person uh, to make the statement or has the final uh, approval. But it is after a long period of study uh, by several people and a lot of prayer and inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, that he will make a pronouncement. Uh, so, I can understand people being a little edgy about uh, the subject of infallibility, but if you really studied the subject and the frequency or lack of frequency uh, of its usage, I think you'll come to understand uh, the place, the role of it, and the practicality. That's very important, uh, and I'm glad you brought that out. So many people criticize the church without understanding the background. And that is, first of all, unfair, but it points to uh, a neglect, really, of speaking, you know, before you know all of the facts. So you've got to be very careful if you criticize, make sure that you know uh, where the subject matter is coming from and all the facts behind it. Uh, in reference to Betty's statement about the problems that existed at the time of Isaiah seems to also be existing today. It is something that really doesn't change uh, a lot from time to time. And I would like to go to this other article here from that same magazine about understanding the poor. Again, at the time of Isaiah and even at the time of Christ, and to some degree uh, it still exists, we have a negative way of looking at poor people, um, homeless people, those people who have uh, come from a poverty background and still seems seem to be floundering in poverty. You know, poverty begets poverty. And that's what this uh, article here um, is really all about. Individuals mired in poverty face many challenges as they seek to better their lives. Failing public transit systems make it difficult for them to travel to work. A scarcity of affordable childcare leads many to stay home rather than look for a job. Deteriorating public housing pushes young people out of their homes and onto the streets. New evidence points to another challenge for the people who are poor. The cognitive demands of poverty itself. According to a study published in the journal Science, individuals who are poor, and we're talking about financially poor rather than spiritually poor, are constantly thinking about how to make the most of a dollar. As a result, other decisions they make in their lives 
whether about parenting or diet, are impaired because they're always trying to figure out where their next meal is coming from. Okay. Farmers, for example, perform better on cognitive tests after a harvest than before a harvest because the profits provided a financial and mental cushion. Obviously, if they had a very poor harvest, their mental attitude would be way down. Whereas if they have a bountiful harvest, their joy and their mental attitude is way up. These findings are detailed for the lay reader in the new book, Scarcity. Why having too little means so much. Uh, by this gentleman whose name I don't wish <coughs> to pronounce. Two of them, for that matter. Uh, their research should finally put to rest the misguided notion that people who are poor, mainly because of low intelligence or a poor work ethic, rather than the conditions in which they live. Their work should also help advance public policy. The more we know about the conditions and the stresses that poor people face, the better positioning we have will then <coughs> will we will be to lend them a hand. Christian ministers have long held that helping the poor must begin as an exercise in empathy. It is encouraging to see the behavioral sciences build upon this moral insight. In other words, there's a great deal more to the plight of the poor than just what appearances show. The pressures that come from all sides against the poor sort of keep them there. And it takes a tremendous effort uh, and sometimes uh, a major turn of events, whether good or bad, in the life of an individual who is mired in poverty to get out of that. Because the consequences um, of poverty are, hold them there. Now, we shouldn't look down upon the poor people. Poor in many different ways. Rather, we should pray, first of all, ask for God's guidance and direction, and then offer uh, a hand, if we can, whether it be financial or some other way, I remember one time I came out of a restaurant and there was a man standing outside and asked if he, I could give him a, a dollar or I don't know whether he specified money or not, a specific amount of money or not, uh, because he hadn't eaten all day. And here I had just come out of the restaurant. So I said, come on in, I'll buy you a meal because I wasn't certain whether, if I gave him money, whether it would go towards a meal or not. So I thought, this way, I'll know. And I could see this poor fellow 
looked like he hadn't eaten for quite a while because he ate everything that was uh, available. Uh, and so I tried to ask him a little bit. This has happened some years ago, so I don't know all the de- remember all the details. But I tried to ask him, you know, what or how did he get into the situation that he was in? And because he was clean, um, fairly neatly dressed, uh, didn't look too out of line, you might say. And this is on Old Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. So you can imagine the kinds of people that uh, are there. But St. Basil's Cathedral is also there. And that's where I was coming out of um, beforehand. Anyways. So he tried to tell me a little bit of some of the circumstances. He had lost his job. Uh, and because of the economy, he could not seem to get a job uh, in the same line of work. And therefore, he was looking for virtually anything. But when you apply, uh, the worst thing you can say to a prospective employer is, I'll take anything. Because that implies that you're desperate. And you may not be qualified for what the employer is looking for. And therefore, they'll hesitate to take you. See, that's one of the pressures in itself against poor people trying to get a job. is they may not be qualified, even though they're willing to take whatever is available and do the work. Um, so, and then in the process of the conversation with this person... Uh, he said his wife was in the same situation, which, of course, just, you know, doubled the, the problem. So I did give him some money to buy clothes to take to the wife, but or clothes, I mean, uh, food. Um, but it kind of left me, as you can tell, uh, with a feeling of, of empathy for poor people. And I've tried to uh, do what I could uh, to alleviate some of their problems since then. But it has changed my attitude uh, towards the poor. Because I, like most people, kind of look down upon them. Thought, you know, there's always jobs you can get. You know, there's always things you can do to, to, you know, to take care of your, your needs. Well, that isn't always the case. There's a lot of reasons why people are poor beyond their own circumstances. Now, Isaiah is telling us really essentially the same thing. That the leaders within both the North and the South were so caught up in fostering their own livelihood, their own status, uh, their own wealth, um, and so forth, that they looked down upon and did virtually nothing for the poor. And that is what God, through the prophet, is condemning. Is that the rich are enjoying riches and the poor are getting poorer. And they don't seem to be willing enough to change. And it really didn't change all through history still hasn't really changed uh, very much. The Jewish people, though, 
have changed in a sense that they look after their own. They are very, very uh, conscientious uh, about taking care of their own, making sure that there's no Jewish people in uh, soup kitchen lines or welfare lines or that kind of thing. Uh, but unfortunately, they do not go outside and take care of others. Uh, that's part of their culture. And rather than condemning them for it, we should feel sorry and pray for them. Because that makes sense. That's what Isaiah is really all about. As we get further on into part two, we will see where the whole situation has changed. Part two takes place well, either towards the end of the Babylonian exile or really afterwards. Now, what has happened, and I'm getting a little ahead of my story, but uh, it's part of the understanding of the history. They finally got the message, you might say, while they were in Babylon. And this is a relatively small number of people compared to what was in all of the two nations beforehand. We don't know what the numbers are, so we can't say. But it was a relatively small number of people. But they complain bitterly. If you read chapters, 20, uh, not chapters, but Psalm 126 and 137, you'll get just a little bit of the idea of what they were complaining about. All right? And how they looked upon things once they were released. All right? But while they were there, they finally got the idea of why they were there. And through the efforts of the prophet Ezekiel, they began to study the book of Deuteronomy, which was available and taken with these people to Babylon. Okay. Deuteronomy, particularly the center piece of it, I forget the exact chapters, uh, became the law. And out of that became or came a new attitude. And they were going to follow the law so that they could honor God. And God then would protect them. Well, that started out okay. But as they moved back into Israel, they found that Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed and that for 50 years the city had been virtually abandoned and not taken care of and other nations had moved in and so they had to start all over again. Well, they were going to do it by golly. They were going to obey the law and they were going to do this. Well, the problem went from extreme one side of total neglect of God to the other side of overemphasizing obedience to the law. And so the law became the center of their life. 
their livelihood, their purpose, etc. And they obeyed laws rather than God. Again, they neglected God because they felt the laws were more important. And unfortunately, to some degree, that's still the way of Jewish people. Um, And by the time of Christ coming, he was condemning the leaders in the same way that Isaiah is condemning the leaders, but for slightly different reasons. The leaders at Jesus' time neglected the poor because they were enhancing themselves and they were twisting the laws around in order to justify their own way of life. And that can't be done either. Now, what do we take out of all of that? First of all, we are partners with God. We are, that's just another way of saying that we are the body of Christ. The hands, the feet, the voice, the eyes, etc. of Christ today. That is the church. We have to be committed to the Father just as Jesus was committed to the Father. Jesus, in several places within the Gospels, say that he does not do anything of his own or say anything of his own, but only repeats what the Father has given him to tell us. So he is the ultimate prophet. The ultimate prophet. But we today represent his hand, his voice, or whatever. And we have to find out what is our particular role in God's plan of salvation. Because each one of us has a particular role. Uh, I'd like to read we've got a little time here. Anyone take this magazine? The Word Among Us? The Daily Devotional, many of you take the Magnificat. It's the same kind of thing. A Daily Devotional, it also has all of the readings uh, for each day of the month. This is a monthly. Okay. Today's commentary on the readings says, with all the violence in the world today, you may not like the image of being a weapon for the Lord weapon for the Lord. But in this case, St. Paul is encouraging you to be a holy and loving weapon. Change that word weapon to partner. Remember I talked about God needing partners to implement this plan of salvation? All right. If we change that word to partner, it is not quite as harsh um, and works better from the way I'm trying to present it. 
St. Paul is encouraging you to be a holy and loving partner used by God to free people from darkness. And that's a good thing. So today, put your whole body to work for the Lord. Use your eyes to be on the lookout for anyone who needs encouragement. Use your tongue to speak words of kindness. Use your hands to and arms to embrace somebody who is feeling alone or overwhelmed. Use your feet to offer quick assistance with any problems you run across. Offer your ears if someone needs to vent about a problem. Most important, offer your mind to understand the best way you can help the people around you. Whether you realize it or not, a spiritual battle is going on around you. And that's true. We've not talked about spiritual warfare, uh, but that's something that all of us faces uh, to some degree or other. A battle, a spiritual warfare, a battle for souls of God's children. And while God is certainly big enough to fight his own battles, he offers you the privilege, the honor, and the calling to join him. He asks you to offer, he asks us to offer our lives as weapons of righteousness, fighting for people with God's love and compassion in our right and left hands. Will you join today in helping to rescue those who have wandered off the path to life and gotten themselves trapped in spiritual darkness? Do not say, well, I'm only a mom. Do not say, I'm only an office worker or a steward or a retiree. You are exactly what God needs you to be today. You are strategically placed on the battlefield, and God will bring you to the people he needs you to help in rescuing. So, be alert. Have your spiritual eyes, ears, hands, and heart wide open. Let the Lord use you as a weapon of righteousness to win the battle over the darkness and evil of this world. It's really the same message that Isaiah has been preaching, in other words. Any questions? Let's end with a prayer. Lord, help us to know who our neighbor is. Help us to know who we can help. Help us to know how we can be your hands, your eyes, your mouth today. Help us really to see ourselves as your partner in working towards the final gift of salvation for all mankind. Most importantly, our own. Help us really to see how we can join you and saving mankind, one person at a time. So give us the strength and the grace to set aside our own cares, but to open ourselves up to you and to our neighbor. So we are grateful for the gifts that you have given us. Help us to show it by sharing them with others. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.